Hey folks, you're listening to Snow of the Land, broadcasting from the traditional territories of the Mississauga of the Credit, at 93.3 FM at the University of Guelph, maybe you're listening online, cfru.ca, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you listen to your podcast. It's a show about our connections with the land base, how we interact with the land, how we learn about the land, how we defend the land. My name is Byron, and today I I wanted to do a show about strange nature, and I'm foregoing the previously recorded episode um, to talk about where I am. I'm somewhere on Highway 24, uh, just outside of Erin in Ontario, Southern Ontario. And I was going with my brother uh, to go for a hike and then eventually go to visit my mom. I think it's Mother's Day weekend, so go to visit her. But along the way, the car stopped working. Um, Every time we put uh, the gas, the car would not would not move. It wasn't getting any propulsion from the gas. So um, we pulled over to this abandoned garage. It looks like a car garage or detailing place of some kind. And I had to pee, so I came out behind the building, and lo and behold, there's this beautiful wetland here. And on, it seems on most sides of me, there are houses uh, with nice-sized backyards, but they're all fenced off before it gets to this wetland. And, I mean, y'all can probably pick up more than I can, but there's wrens, um, I've heard robins, seen some ducks fly overhead, probably some mallards, um, heard the cardinal, a couple of blue jays off in the corner, so, and maybe even a woodpecker in the distance, and then all around me, like behind me, from, uh, the garage towards me, it's pretty rubbly, pretty, uh, probably poisoned with a lot of the chemicals from the garage over the years. Uh, it's full of dandelion, greater celandine, burdock, uh, creeping charlie, mostly those things, some uh, garlic mustard, along the edges, a number of Manitoba maples, there's even a willow, and then as you get further back, some balsam poplars starting to grow, uh, eastern white cedar. Typical restoring back to like rewilding sort of habitat full of non-natives and aggressive opportunistic plants. But it's it's beautiful. If I look the other way, if I look towards wetlands, red osier dogwood, some Manitoba maples, a bunch of currants off to the side. 
probably red by the look of them, but I, I wouldn't be able to tell for sure. I think they're red currants. Oh, and there's some, oh, what is that called? Uh, Remnus frangula, the European buckthorn in front of me. And I just, I'm just noting all this because I think it's actually pretty amazing, this beautiful spot that we landed on. And I think that like amidst the rubble and debris, there is so much life going on. As I sort of slowly walked back behind the building, I spooked a chipmunk. They weren't expecting me. But then I just, you know, kept going and there's all sorts of neat stuff back here. There looks like some feeding sign of squirrels on some of the trees. Um, the chipmunk was obviously here. I can't get down into the mud right now. If we do sort out the car situation, I will be uh, going to visit my mom and you know, I'd like it to kind of look a little bit nice. She wouldn't mind the mud, though. Um, but I just love these beautiful spaces that are ignored for so long because they're considered bad places full of bad plants. Is there such a thing? I don't think so. But some people do. And it's just amazing what you can find in those places. Um, yeah, it's so cool. The sumac's coming in. They're, it's just sort of reclaiming itself and becoming itself again um, as, as the legacy of this garage sort of fades to succession, to early succession. If you've listen to the show for a long time and I don't know how many people actually have uh, there is an interview a long time ago I did with Peter Del Tredici when the second edition of Wild Urban Plants of the Northeast came out and that was a field guide that changed my mind on a lot of things that, that field guide really influenced and opened up my eyes to all the possibilities there are for what what is nature where does nature inhabit where does nature hang out and I see I see how this spot is holy holy nature it is it is it is exactly that living and breathing ecosystem undefined by us but defined by its component parts and community all these birds around me all these all these plants you can hear that dog so it's obviously that there's neighboring households that are part of things but this wild space is, is a very wild space it's just that I think there's so much inspiration in these places and 
not only not only like the image of it, not only the the being here, but maybe both. That these strange communities coming together. I think they might fall into the category of like novel ecosystems. These novel ecosystems coming together and sort of restoring restoring and building up something something new that wasn't here before this garage went in. Wasn't here before this surrounding neighborhood went in. And it's pretty magical. Watching the bees go by. Huge, big queen bumblebees. I hope the kids here get to play in this area. Get to climb these trees. I think that's like a couple of tamaracks down there. It's a beautiful spot. I know this argument is played out and a lot of people recognize it's, you know, a fallacy in a lot of levels and minds are starting to change. But in Peter Del Tredici's book, he talks about the fear of, of non-native plants, the xenophobia. The same sort of fear that comes about in people's frustrations or arguments against immigration. You know, here are these plants that are choking out choking out the native species and the native species no longer have places to be here and so it's like similar to that idea of like uh, immigrants coming in taking people's jobs whatever that's used as a means of sort of like divide and conquer I think people look at these plants the same way. But I think that the same way is that when folks come here, it creates new opportunities, not only for the new folks coming, but also brings different ideas, different ways of being, different modes of being, different ways of being in community that people find they have different niches. All these different cultures, we have different niches. All these different plant communities have different niches that they can occupy because nature abhors a vacuum. It doesn't like one. It doesn't allow one to exist. And we're the same. I think things get replaced sometimes, but I think with the perspective of resilience and a perspective of Adaptability, which nature teaches and shares and shows all the time that we can find ways to exist in the world. 
And I think these strange immigrant communities that come to, to come to pass in these empty, abandoned lots are are amazing. They teach us so much on how to get together, how to be together, how to restore and welcome back a healthy space. I've been thinking about this a lot because I've also been asked recently by someone from the city of Guelph, where I live, can I keep an eye out for the giant hogweed that grows along the river by the school where I work? And I've been taking my kids, and we've been walking up and down the river, looking for everything, but keeping an eye out and telling them explicitly what to look for, for the giant hogweed. And now giant hogweed is is a non-native, opportunistic plant that produces like 10,000 seeds every year that can float along watercourses and just like land wherever. If flooding occurs, they can make their way upstream. Um, If natural cycles occur, flooding is that, but like if, if the water just flows along the river, the seeds can make their way downstream. And so these, these plants spread. And they're giant. They're giant hogweed. It's tall. It's a really massive plant. It's taller than me. I've, I've encountered many. And they also... Uh, if you break off a limb or get in contact with some of the sap on the inside, you can experience the phytophotodermatitis. So... Uh, plant light dermatitis. So it like irritates the skin, burns the skin. It's like a really, really bad sunburn. If the sap gets on you, then you're exposed to sunlight. You can really, really burn the skin. So people are afraid of this plant, and they they want it gone from ecosystems. I guess it, 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 I've never seen it grow so like colonize an area so much that it takes over and doesn't allow other things to grow. It's usually one large plant, sometimes a few large plants. But, yeah. I, 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 I've been thinking about it because of the hogweed, and I've been thinking about... The city wants me to tell them so they can come in and spray a pest or an herbicide on the plant and then remove any signs of it or traces of it so it doesn't keep growing. And I mentioned this to my coworkers, and one of my coworkers mentioned that they question whether we should be doing that, whether we should be um, trying to reduce the amount of hogweed in the area. Is it, they, they wonder, I think, um, is it from like this xenophobic perspective of, you know, we need to get rid of these, the hogweed because, you know, it's from far away, it's pushing out natives, or is it because it's, you know, a safety issue? And I think that's a really good question. Like, are we pushing out the hogweed because it's from far away, because it's non native? Because it's perceived safety issue. 
Or is there a way that we can be learning from the hogweed and allowing it to exist and seeing what it does on the, on the landscape? Because the plants are helping to restore the landscape. If you think about the giant part of the giant hogweed, the biomass that's accumulated from this plant and then deposited on top of the soil that's probably allowing other plants to grow out of that biomass eventually, it could be serving to uh, restore the soil in a lot of ways. You could also argue that it's uh, erosion control, how it just hangs out on top of like on these river edges, preventing erosion. And if you think of a lot of a lot of non-native opportunistic plants, these are plants that come in and stabilize soils right away. And because bare ground is is rarely, not not so often, a thing in our our ecosystem. And so all these plants that come in sort of know what to do to stop bare ground from existing. And they come in and they restore that, making space for other plants to come in, successional plants to take over. So, is the giant hogweed a bad thing? Is it, is it a good thing? And I, I, as a white settler, I wonder often, I should be listening to folks who, who critique this, who have this critique of invasive plants that like, says maybe we just got to leave them be maybe we got to just don't don't take them out let them do their work but then but then i have a teacher Mitone, an elder a band council member, I believe, up at Cape Croker. And he, I've talked to him once. We were, we were driving along, and I asked him a question about that book, Invasive Plant Medicine. Saying, you know, like, a lot of these plants can be used for medicine. Should we be keeping them? Should we be working with them? And he used to also work with species at risk, like, like an organization that helps preserve and educate and teach and... and create more biodiversity and protect biodiversity through these species that are at risk in different parts of Ontario. And from an indigenous perspective, his thought was he can recall through his community, through his, probably through his own life, what it looks like when non-native like individuals come take over indigenous spaces prevent indigenous people from living their lives in healthy ways or in any ways and then just take over just that's the story of colonization and I think that at the time and I should ask him again at the time, I don't think he would have been into leaving the hogweed. I think he'd be like, take it out. Remove it. Don't let it spread its seeds. And so, I don't hear of this 
leave it be, let's learn from it mentality from a lot of indigenous folks. But I hear about it from uh, sort of maybe like perceived radical or, or left-leaning or progressive botanists or ecologists. Um, I hear it from uh, new immigrant communities because these are the plants they grow up with or come from the same place that they do. Um, I hear it from like young academic white folks. And I'm just curious. I'm curious, what is this space? What is this strange conundrum amongst all the other strange conundrums when relating ecology, colonization, immigration, climate change? Where should we be working to do things? Where should we not? One of my adult programs that I teach, one of the students posted a thing on our, our, our internet forum for the community of people who are learning together. And it was about how, I think the title of the article is like, When Best Management Means No Management or something like that. And it's discussing longitudinal... Uh, population dynamics of garlic mustard in the Northeast. And looking at how garlic mustard comes into an environment, sweeps through, doesn't allow other things to grow, releases perhaps a aliopathic fungicide from its, from its roots that doesn't allow mycelium or these mycorrhizal connections to exist. And just like comes and tears up everything. But then, after 30 years or so, the, the, the garlic mustard sort of turns down its aggressive behavior, and the other plants sort of turn up their defensive behavior, and things start to level out. Now that that's another argument from a different thing, but I, I wanna I'll share this I'll share these links so that people can be part of this conversation. But what if what if the best management is to just leave things be and see what happens? And I wanna take that to a holistic approach of like what happens if we leave things be in a you know in a broad sense like what would happen if we stopped destroying wetlands would things heal better if we could leave it be what would happen if we stopped repairing like infrastructure that's not so critical what if we decided as communities, like maybe, maybe some of these 
tertiary roads aren't necessary. And we, we leave them be. Or maybe even do one better, just pull them up. Especially if they're going through like a wetland area. What would happen? What would happen to the plant populations there? What would happen to the amphibian populations there? I think there is many places in the world where this is happening, where this is actively happening. Either, I would also say passively happening, like actively happening by people closing down roads, removing them, closing down railroads, removing them, making hike, hiking paths and trails. Or, or as communities don't have the budget to repair things, they just let them degrade. And then the rain, the snow, seeds, animals, they start doing the work. And sort of like breaking things down. And through succession, taking back these places. And I wonder, it's like, is it a mix of that, leaving it be, and a possible mix of restorative planting, like ecological restoration, planting and, and restoring water waterways that allow things to ripple out from there. I've been looking around lately and I've been seeing more young uh, service berries everywhere, Amelanchier. And I think because of the plantings that I've been doing by the city, but in Guelph, the municipal plantings, there's more service berries in managed areas. But that means that there's more birds eating those service berries. That means that there's more birds dropping seeds of the service berries in other areas where they fly to, so more service berries grow. So maybe it's a both of do nothing and do stuff that will ripple out, that will have this long-term interspecies spatial temporal effects thinking beyond the moment into the future into what's like just observing what already happens and rolling with it as a means to heal environments from either this garage behind me or from other development other destruction that has occurred on the landscape. I'm just so curious, and I, I'm just full of questions, and I'm sorry if this show is boring just listening to me wonder about this. But I guess with all the new growth coming up and noticing who's coming up first, who's coming up where, where are they from, what is their role on the landscape? I see it now in the spring and it all comes back. 
And I just get to wondering, you know? Just get to thinking, what's the best thing to do? What do you do? I know there's some folks who work in these fields who listen to the show. You've written. I'm curious as to what y'all do to to manage landscapes or to not manage landscapes. How do you work to heal landscapes? And how do we do it in ways that are sustainable, that are cost-effective? I want to say some words like hip How do we leverage, uh, like, interspecies work? Like, with the service berries. Do we just plant more service berries, and then the birds plant more service berries for us? And because they're from seed, they're all genetically diverse... And then that provides food, shelter, shade. Service berries grow quickly. They don't last long, but if we leave them be, they can create environments for longer-term plants to come in. And do we expand beyond the service berries? Do we think of, like, nut trees? Do we think of the black walnuts to sort of restore forests where areas have been cleared and sort of grasslands coming back. Do we restore grasslands by just coming in and planting grassland species? It's tricky in a culture where whatever we do to restore and repair, it has to keep up pace with whatever is being done to dismember and destroy on other fronts. So in, in, in Ontario, there are these bills being passed over and over again that make it easier to develop to destroy these wetlands. And it's so fast. So I'm curious as to how do we keep pace? And I think it is with aligning with various species. Finding ways that our work can service the other species to do their work. I guess I'm realizing these service berries are a big teacher. No wonder I like them so much. I think I should go see what my brother's up to at the front of this garage. See if he needs support or help or anything like that. I think he's got it all covered and he's just doing his thing. Waiting for a ride. Waiting for CAA.
If you got ideas on this, if you got thoughts or whatever, you can always email me to know the land at gmail.com. You can hit me up on Instagram at to know the land. You can comment on the show on wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can visit the website www.tonowtheland.com. Yeah, I'd love to hear from more folks, see what they're thinking, especially if you're trying something weird, something new. And I know everybody's trying all sorts of different things. And I recognize that everybody recognizes that it's more than recycling. There's a lot of stuff that needs to happen. So if you got ideas, I want to hear about it. Enjoy the spring. Take care.